In the book of Hebrews, the author takes the story of Israel coming out of Egypt and sojourning through the wilderness and entering into the promised land, and he applies it to the church to which he writes in a way that is instructive for how we too at First Baptist Nixa should apply the Old Testament, particularly the book of Joshua. So I want to begin this morning by turning to Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to let the author of Hebrews set the stage for the sermon this morning from Joshua chapter 1. The author of Hebrews begins by quoting from Psalm 95, in which the psalmist warns the congregation of Israel in his day not to act like their forefathers, who had rebelled against the Lord in the wilderness at Kadesh Barnea when they turned away from the promised land in unbelief. You remember that event, how Moses had sent the 12 spies into the land and they brought back the report saying the land is good, but the people are too big and our God is too small and we cannot take the land. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7, therefore the Holy Spirit says, and he quotes from Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, and I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In other words, though God had had brought them out of Egypt with an outstretched arm, with signs and wonders, and though he had preserved them in the desert with water from the rock and manna from heaven, and though he appeared to them on Sinai in flaming fire and gave to them the law written on tablets of stone with the very finger of God, yet when they arrived at the border of the promised land, the people of Israel turned away in unbelief. And the psalmist said to Israel in his day, don't be like them. And the author of Hebrews said to the church in his day, don't be like him. And so the Holy Spirit says to us today, don't come all the way to the border of Canaan. Don't come all the way to the edge of eternal life and fail to obtain God's rest. That is the promised inheritance and blessing. Verse 12 of Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if... Indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And here's the application that the author of Hebrews makes to his church and that I make to us this morning. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest. So that none of us may fall 
by the same sort of disobedience. Do you see how the author of Hebrews takes the story of Israel and applies it to his church? Israel had been redeemed from the bondage of slavery in Egypt by the power of God. Even so, the church has been redeemed from the bondage of sin in the kingdom of darkness by the saving work of Christ. Israel had to sojourn in the wilderness, relying upon the Lord's provision of water and manna. Even so, the church sojourns through the wilderness of this world, relying on Christ's provision of living water and the bread of life that comes to us by the Holy Spirit through the word. Israel was brought to their promised inheritance, but in order to enter into that blessed rest to claim their inheritance, they had to defeat their enemies, the peoples of the land that were stronger and mightier and more numerous than they, a wicked people that are synonymous in scripture with the embodiment of sin. Even so, the church likewise has a promised inheritance of blessing and rest in a new heaven and a new earth. But in order to enter in and take possession of that rest, we too must vanquish the enemies of sin that still inhabit our soul. Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you let sin reign in your mortal bodies, you won't inherit the promise. Strive, Hebrews 12, 14, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for it or you won't see God. See to it that none of us fails to obtain the grace of God. The first generation of Israel failed to persevere. They failed to believe God's promise and lay hold of their inheritance. They failed to obtain God's promised rest. And they were turned away from the promised land and they died in the wilderness. And the author of Hebrews looks at his church and he sees them in danger of the very same thing. They had heard the gospel. They had turned to Christ, outwardly at least, But they were in danger of failing to persevere, of failing to enter into God's final Sabbath rest. So he wrote them a letter and he urged them to press on in faith, to lay hold of the promise and to not turn away from the promised land, not to return to the shadows of old covenant Judaism, just like Israel had turned away from the borders of Canaan and tried to go back to Egypt. Now, the author of Hebrews was not concerned about questions of eternal security when he wrote that letter. He wasn't concerned about the theological mechanics of whether it's actually possible for someone who's truly justified to fall away from grace. It's not. He wasn't writing as a theologian. He was writing as a pastor who's trying to shepherd his flock into the promised land, a flock in which he knows he's got wheat and he's got tares, he's got sheep and he's got goats, he's got believers, and he's got believers in name only. And he looked at the Old Testament account of Israel's exodus from Egypt and their journey through the wilderness and their entrance into the promised land, and he found in those stories from Exodus and Numbers and Joshua an apt paradigm with which to exhort his own congregation to press on to final salvation. So let me say say this morning that it is true that if you have been justified, you can never be condemned. 
If you have been saved, you can never be lost. But the question that the author of Hebrews is asking is, how do you really know you've been justified? How do you really know that you have been and are being and will be saved? The only sure evidence of genuine faith is perseverance. Says Jesus, it is the one who perseveres to the end who will be saved. One of the messages of Hebrews is that if trials or tribulations or temptations cause you to turn away from Christ, to fall away from the grace of the gospel and return to the world and its sin like a dog returns to its vomit, then your faith was fraudulent from the beginning. A church is a congregation of people who have professed faith in Christ who have received the visible sign of conversion, which is baptism, who are marching together to Zion, as it were, to take hold of our possession, our inheritance of eternal life. We are striving together to enter that rest. We're watching over one another. We're exhorting one another day by day that not one of us may be hardened by the deceitful sin, deceitfulness of sin, that not one of us may fall away from the living God, that not one of us may fail to obtain what is promised. This church and every true church is engaged in a fight against sin and unbelief, not as individuals, but as a body that we may enter together into the promised land and into the promised rest. That's what the author of Hebrews saw when he read the Old Testament. That's what he saw when he read the book of Joshua. And that's what I want us to see in these pages this morning and over the next four months. I'm going to give you this morning five characteristics of a church that enters and possesses our inheritance together. Five characteristics of a church that obtains to God's promised rest. Number one, the church that possesses the promised land is a church that is built upon the promise of God rather than the personality of man, particularly of a charismatic leader. The book of Joshua begins in the aftermath of the death of Moses, which was recorded just one page earlier in Deuteronomy 34. Moses is a towering figure in the history of Israel, and he casts a long shadow over the entirety of Scripture, but especially over the book of Joshua. It was Moses to whom God appeared in the Midianite desert in the burning bush. It was through Moses that God chose to deliver his people Israel from the bondage of Egypt. It was Moses who went toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and commanded him, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. It was Moses through whom God performed signs and wonders, inflicting ten plagues upon Egypt and parting the Red Sea and bringing forth water from the rock and sending down manna from heaven. It was Moses who saw the glory of the Lord upon the mountain and received the law written with the very finger of God. It was Moses who interceded for Israel when God had declared that he would destroy them because of their idolatry with the golden calf. It was Moses 
Moses, who for 40 years functioned for Israel as a type of prophet and priest and king, a picture of that one who is greater than Moses, who is the true prophet, priest, and king of God's people. It was Moses who led Israel for 40 years through the wilderness and brought them to the very border of the promised land. But now, in the very first verse of Joshua 1, we read, Moses is dead. And unlike the one greater than Moses, he's not coming back. Moses had brought Israel to the waters of the Jordan, but he was forbidden from entering the land. Because he had sinned against the Lord when he struck the rock in anger at Meribah in the presence of Israel. And thus had failed to trust the Lord and to uphold him as holy in the sight of the congregation. You can read about that story this afternoon in Numbers chapter 20. At the end of Deuteronomy, when Moses has issued that final charge to the people of Israel, he ascended Mount Nebo on the eastern side, outside of the promised land, and there the Lord showed him the land. But Moses did not come down from that mountain. He died there, and he was buried by the Lord. And Deuteronomy 34 says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And that's where the book of Joshua picks up. Verse 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory." No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. In other words, we find in the very first verses of Joshua chapter 1 that the promise did not rest on Moses. It continued after Moses' death. The plan of God and the church of Christ does not rest upon one man. No matter how gifted or powerful or charismatic or eloquent he may be. What would be the people's response after the death of their great leader that they had followed for 40 years. Who was unparalleled in his wisdom and his power and his access to the presence of God. What were they going to do? Joshua did not possess the gifts and the grace that Moses possessed. Even verse 1 alludes to this fact. You'll note that it calls Moses the servant of the Lord. But it only calls Joshua the servant of Moses. How would Israel respond when the servant of the Lord is dead and all they've got now is the servant of Moses? 
Would they give up? Would they turn around? Would they head back to Egypt? Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. And that's what a true church does. A church that possesses the promised land. Pastors come and pastors go. They live and they die. They rise and sometimes they fall. But the church marches on to take possession of the inheritance that God has promised them. First Baptist Nix has been around for 106 years. 99 years before I came here. And if the Lord tarries, I pray that it'll be here a hundred years after I leave, which Lord willing will not be for a very long time. The church, in other words, isn't built upon my ministry or the ministry of any other pastor or any other leader. It can't be. It has to be built upon the promise of God. Too many churches are built upon the personalities of charismatic figures. And when that leader leaves or dies or exits the ministry for one reason or another, the church crumbles to the ground for lack of a foundation unless they're able to replace him with an equally charismatic leader. Let's not play that game here. Let's not buy into that system. I hope that you are a part of this church because it's built upon the word of Christ. And when you come here, you experience his grace through his word, through his worship, through his ordinances, through his people. In other words, I hope that it's Jesus who has brought you here and that it's Jesus who keeps you here. Moses was not the leader of Israel. That's the point of verse 1. God was. I'm not the head of this church. Christ is. I can't be your hope because I will fail you eventually. So Joshua chapter 1 calls us to put our trust in Christ and to follow him alone regardless of who's the pastor, regardless of who stands in the pulpit. That's what a church that possesses the promised land does. Number two. A church that possesses the promised land has strong and courageous leaders. Sheep without a shepherd will not just wander of their own in Zion. They must be led and fed. They must be guided and guarded by strong, courageous, capable shepherds. Even though the church must not be built upon the personality of pastors, it needs pastors, strong ones, courageous ones, capable ones. Hence the Lord's threefold repetition of the command to Joshua to be strong and courageous. He doesn't say, Joshua, your leadership doesn't matter. He says, you must be strong and courageous and I'll bring this people through the Jordan into the land. 
Verse 6, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Even the people recognize the need for strength and courage in their leader, because when they pledge their obedience to Joshua, just as they had obeyed Moses, they end verse 18 by exhorting Joshua, only be strong and courageous. We'll follow you if you're strong and courageous. Now we noticed last week where strength and courage comes from. It comes from the promise of God, verse 6. It comes from the word of God, verses 7 and 8. And it comes from the presence of God, verse 9. This week, I want to focus on what dangers pastors face in the course of their ministry that requires strength and courage. There are many, but I'm going to name three in particular. First, you need strong and courageous pastors because they face dangers from enemies outside the church. Just as Joshua's enemies were kings and armies and fortified cities... Even so, pastors face dangers from demonic opposition and persecuting forces which threaten the well-being of the church. I want to give you an example from the book of Revelation, a book which repeatedly warns the church against the dangers posed by the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, and those who follow them. In Revelation 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus sends seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, all of which are facing opposition of some form or another. For some, that opposition is persecution from without. For others, it's false teaching from within. But in either case, it's the pastors of the church that need to step up in strength and courage and face down these enemies. Jesus says to the church at Smyrna, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. To the church of Philadelphia, Jesus says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. In both of those instances, Smyrna and Philadelphia, the dangers facing the church were external. It was persecution. In Smyrna, Satan was about to throw some of the saints into prison, and he was about to kill others. Now ask yourself, who do you think would be the first to go to prison and death from that church? I think it'd be the pastor. I think it ought to be. And whose job is it to prepare the church to be faithful unto death, both by their teaching and by their example? The pastor. In Philadelphia, it was the Jews, whom Jesus calls a synagogue of Satan, who were persecuting the church. Now again, who do you think is going to be the prime target of their persecution? And whose responsibility is it to prepare them to persevere in the faith? I think it's the pastor's. 
Churches need strong and courageous pastors in order to endure and face down persecution which comes from the enemies without. Second, though, pastors face dangers from inside the church. And this is primarily where false teaching comes from. False teaching usually does not originate from outside the church. It usually arises from within the church. That's what Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. And again, we can take our cue from the letters in Revelation to the church at Ephesus, for instance. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. So false apostles were afflicting the church at Ephesus. False apostles were not pagans. They probably weren't even Jews. They claimed to be Christians, and they had to be faced down. To the church in Pergamum, Jesus says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some in your church who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This was a false teaching which turned the grace of God into licentiousness, and it came from within the church. Whose job is it to confront false teaching within the church? It's the pastors. Whose responsibility was it to lead the church in banishing these false teachers and casting them out of their midst? It was the pastors. Whose job was it to teach the church true doctrine so that they may recognize the counterfeit when it arises? It's the pastors. Churches need strong and courageous pastors. Third, There's a third danger pastors face, and it's a danger that resides within their very own souls. Do you remember why Moses was forbidden from entering the promised land? He disqualified himself. He sinned against the Lord at Meribah when he failed to believe God and uphold him as holy in the eyes of Israel. And so there are many pastors who lose their pulpits and disqualify themselves when they fail to believe God and uphold him as holy in the eyes of the people. Moses failed to restrain his sin. Rather, he gave it free reign in a moment of unbelief and anger, and he was disqualified from entering the land. Paul expressed the same fear in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He said, I discipline my body. I keep it under control. Literally, I make it my slave. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The most devious, vicious enemy the pastor faces lies not without and not among the members. It lies within his own heart. How many pastors have shipwrecked their ministries and destroyed their churches by failing to face down the enemies of pride or anger or unbelief or lust or greed? It takes strength and it takes courage to be holy. So churches need strong and courageous pastors who will lead them in the battle against sin for the possession of the promised land. Thirdly, A church that possesses the promised land lives upon the word of God. I think that's a strange way to talk. I I, I say it that way on purpose, but it's strange. You don't live upon a book. You live upon bread and meat and milk. 
You read a book. You listen to a book. You may even memorize a book. But you don't live upon a book, do you? You do if that book is nourishment for your soul in the same way that bread is nourishment for your body. Such that you would starve without it. That's precisely the relationship that exists between the church and its Bible. The church will starve, it will wither, and it will die without the word of God, and it will not possess the land. For, as Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the church, 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn infants, must long for the pure spiritual milk that by it, by the word, it may grow up into salvation. The church lives upon the word of God. At least a church that possesses the promised land does. And not just the milk of the word, not just the easy stuff, but the solid meat of righteousness that grows believers into maturity. This is why the Lord insisted that Joshua live upon the book of the law. Verse 7 of Joshua 1. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Let's talk about prosperity for a second. Now, we defined prosperity last week when we looked at these verses as God causing your soul to prosper causing your soul to prosper by causing all things to work for your salvation. In other words, the Bible defines true prosperity not as your health and your wealth, but as the prosperity of your soul such that you are finally saved. And that prosperity of soul depends upon careful obedience to the word of God. That you may have good success wherever you go. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And careful obedience to the word of God, verse 8, grows out of diligent meditation and memorization of the word of God. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Do you see the string of cause and effects here? Your soul will prosper and you will inherit the promise if you're careful to obey all that is written in this book. But you will only be careful to obey all that is written in this book if you're diligent to meditate upon it and memorize it. I said it last week and it bears repeating today. This is a promise that you can and should build your life and your hope upon. Here's the promise. If you are careful to obey this book from the heart, you can know the Bible and not know God. From the heart, know it, study it, love it, live upon it. 
If you're careful to obey this book from the heart, to trust what it promises, to do what it commands, your soul will prosper and you will enter the land and live forever in blessing and joy in the presence of your God. I promise you. On Sunday nights, I take my kids out to eat after Rwanda, and we get to spend some time together, just the five of us, uh, talking before the week begins. Often our discussions turn to Scripture. It's the end of Sunday, after all, to theology, to God. And a few weeks ago, the question was asked, how can I know that I'm saved? I like when that question is asked. I think you all ought to ask that question. How can I know that I'm saved? Or to put it in the language of Hebrews, how can I know that I will enter the promised land and not be turned away from entering God's rest? How can I know? Well, there's a number of ways that we could approach questions of assurance, but on this particular Sunday night, a few weeks ago, I was in the middle of writing this sermon. So I took my answer from these verses and I took them to Joshua 1, 7 and 1, 8. And I told my children that if they would give their lives to the word of God, if they would give their lives to learning it and loving it, to trusting it and obeying it, to receiving it as a word from God himself, that is, if they would live upon this word, then they had nothing to fear. But they would certainly enter into God's presence and glory. And I make the same promise to you today. Give careful obedience to this book. Learn it, love it, trust it, obey it, build your life upon it, and your soul will prosper and you'll be saved. Because this book will lead you to Christ, that in him you may have eternal life. John 5, 38 and 39. And the Lord points to two activities in particular which go hand in hand in this endeavor to live upon the word of God. Memorization and meditation. And I'm not entirely sure that you can do one without the other. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. That's memorization. But you shall meditate on it day and night. That's meditation. Memorization and meditation are two essential components to living upon the word of God. That's why in 2021, Lord willing, we are launching a new initiative at First Baptist Nixa to memorize and meditate upon scripture together. Beginning on Monday, January the 4th, and every Monday after that throughout the 52 weeks of the year, we will post a five-minute video to our Facebook page, and I'm going to help you memorize and meditate upon a verse of Scripture. Week by week, we're going to build verse upon verse until by the end of 2021, you will have memorized the entirety of Romans chapter 8, and you'll know what it means. And not only will we have meditated upon it, not only will we have learned it, but we will have memorized it and meditated upon its rich, soul-prospering truths. Now, you're going to hear more about that in the weeks to come, but I'm going to challenge you this morning to commit to that. There's no other way for your soul to prosper. There's no other way to possess the promised land but to live upon the word of God. And I know of no other way to live upon the word of God but to memorize it and meditate upon it. Fourth, a church that possesses the promised land is unified in its commitment to do whatever it takes to enter in. They do it together. They press forward together, they fight sin together, they persevere together through every trial, tribulation, and persecution. I get this from verses 10 to 17. 
And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they They also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses." Now, the background of this interaction comes from Numbers 32. At the end of the 40 years of wandering in the desert, Moses brought Israel to the borders of Canaan, this time approaching it from the east rather than from the south as he had before. And before Moses' final charge to the people, that's what the whole book of Deuteronomy is, it's Moses' last will and testament to the people of Israel, and before his death... God gave Israel victory over the peoples who dwelt east of the Jordan River, the Midianites and the Amorites. The land east of the Jordan appealed to the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So they asked Moses if that land could be their inheritance rather than the land across the Jordan in Canaan. And at first, Moses didn't like their suggestion. He was furious. He thought that they were refusing to cross the Jordan and fight with their brothers in the possession of the land. But these tribes assured Moses that they would indeed enter into the land. In fact, they would go first. They would go ahead of their brothers into the land and would help them fight their enemies and possess the land of their inheritance. Only when God had given Israel victory and peace in the land of Canaan would they then return to their inheritance on the eastern side of the Jordan. So Moses accepted their offer. He swore them to their word. Now in Joshua 1, what Joshua is doing is reminding them of their oath. And the people are affirming their commitment to honor it. I think the implication and application for us is that just as it took the whole of the people of Israel to conquer their enemies, a people that Moses said were stronger and mightier and more numerous than they in order that they might possess the land, so it takes the whole of the church to conquer the enemy of sin that we might possess the land of our inheritance. Perseverance is a corporate endeavor. It takes the whole church pressing forward together, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, admonishing one another, correcting one another, praying for one another, bearing the burden of one another, watching over one another, picking up one another when we fall, going and rescuing one another when we stray. It takes the whole church for any one of us to persevere to the end and to possess the promise. Let me read to you one, two, three, three 
exhortations from Hebrews, and I want you to listen to the way the author places the responsibility for the individual salvation upon the whole church. Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that not one of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. All of you exhort every one of you that not one of you would be hardened by sin. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Pause, make coming to church a priority. Man, it's important. Your soul depends upon it. End pause. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. It's all of our responsibility to make sure that that doesn't happen to any one of us. Who's responsible to exhort one another daily so that no one is deceived by sin? The church. Who's responsible to stir up one another to love and good works, to encourage one another so that we are ready and prepared for the coming day of the Lord, the church? Who is responsible to make sure that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that there be no root of bitterness springing up that defiles the garden of the Lord, that no one sells their birthright for the pleasure of sexual sin or other forms of unholiness, the church? Perseverance in the faith and the possession of the promised land requires the entire church and therefore the entire church must be committed to this very thing to the pressing forward together that we might attain to the promised land i am afraid of enduring trials and tribulations alone i'm afraid of some doctor coming in to the office and telling me i have cancer and i don't have anyone in my life exhorting me to remain faithful exhorting me not to give in to anxiety, not to fear or, or get angry with God. Why would God do this to me? I fear not having someone like a Rance Reckla coming up to me and saying, don't give way to unbelief. I fear enduring the sudden loss of a spouse or the sudden loss of a child or an addiction to come some kind of sin or some kind of persecution alone because I know that I'm not strong enough to slay the enemies of my own and they are mightier and they are greater than I am, but they're not stronger than the church. I need you if I'm going to possess the land and you need me and we need each other. Why do you come to church? It's not to tick off some sort of religious box so that you've been there, done that, and could go home and watch football. You come to church because you need me and I need you and we need one another more than we need whatever it is out there that's keeping us from here. You need it more than you need a few more hours of sleep. You need it more than you need a football game or traveling sports or that extra shift at work. Make the congregation a priority because in it lies your salvation. Finally, 
The church that possesses the promised land is committed to the practice of church discipline. Look at verse 18. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you have commanded him shall be put to death. Strong words. And we'll talk in a few weeks when we get to uh, Joshua chapter 7 and Achan's sin about what that means and how it applies. I'm not going to say much more about it today. We'll return to it then. Let me just make two brief notes. Number one, church discipline is essential. As we will see come Joshua 7, unconfronted sin leads to defeat at the hands of the church's enemies. A failure to discipline unrepentant sin in the church is the death of the church. Second, these were not just empty words that they said on the eastern side of the Jordan. The people of Israel followed through on their promise, and when the time came, they put Achan to death rather than to allow his sin to go unconfronted and their enemies to triumph over them. First Baptist Nixa is committed to the biblical process of church discipline, at least insofar as our Constitution and our membership covenant states. The question that I have for us this morning is, do we have the strength and courage to carry it out when the need arises? Because if we don't, I promise you, God will give us into the hand of our enemies because we will have broken covenant and rebelled against his word. Now, as we proceed through Joshua, we're going to continue to see our experience as a church mirrored in the experience of Israel. So I want to close this morning by saying a word and issuing an invitation to those of you who are not a part of our congregation. I just want to ask you, do you want to enter the promised land with us? Do you want to march with us to Zion? Do you want to share with us in the glorious inheritance of the saints? Because you can. The offer is freely given. It's just as freely received. All it takes is three B's. Three B's if you want to, if you want to march with us to Zion and take possession of the land with us here at First Baptist Nixa. Number one, you need to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the son of God who became the son of man who died upon the cross to make atonement for your sins. There was no other way for you to get right with God, but for Christ to die in your stead. And he rose again on the third day and he is alive forevermore. And according to the author of Hebrews, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So you need to draw near to God through him. You need to believe on Christ, trust in him to save you and to bring you to God. Number two, you need to be baptized. Baptism is the physical sign of belonging to God's new covenant people as circumcision was the physical sign of belonging to God's old covenant people. Just as no uncircumcised male could be a part of the congregation of Israel, so no unbaptized believer can be part of the visible church. Third, you need to belong to the church. You need to enter into membership covenant with the church. If you're just a visitor here, we're so glad that you're here, but you haven't given us permission to exhort you. You haven't given us permission to hold you accountable. You haven't given us permission to warn you, to come after you when you stray. You haven't given us permission to watch over your soul. That's what membership is. So belong. Join us. Become a full covenant member. Share your life with us and let us share our lives with you. Don't be a spectator at this church. Be a member. 
Let's march to Zion together and slay the enemies of sin together and possess the land of promise together.